Acts chapter 15 is where we will be, and you can go ahead and put a pinky in Luke 13. You can put a pinky in Luke 13 because we will eventually make our way that way. But Acts chapter 15, while you're turning there, I want to tell you a short story. This is a true story. It happened to a student of mine a few years ago when I taught at Forest Lake Academy down in Orlando, Florida. We had our seniors and juniors, you know, advanced placement classes or honors courses in, in high school that can help you get college credit or uh, dual credit. I had 12 credits when I entered college as a result of some of those classes. Well, we, we created an honors Bible course at that academy for juniors and seniors. We called it Servant Leadership, and it was for those students who who really wanted more out of their Bible classes and really wanted to uh, explore their spirituality on a deeper level. It was very practical. They actually, those classes were responsible for planning most of our school events that year, uh, any sort of religious event that we did. Uh, they got practical experience, and one of the things that we had them do, because Forest Lake Academy is a boarding academy, so we have dorm students, is on weeks where the dorms would go to a local church, we'd take some of our servant leadership students with them, and we'd say, all right, you're going to take notes on the sermon. And after the sermon, after church, when we get back, we're going to split up the dorm students into small groups. And you're going to lead discussions with them to process and really figure out what did this sermon mean and teach us. And so our students were diligent about this. They, they went and every student had an iPad. This was the year, or this was, I think, two years after uh, our Adventist school started making that shift. And one of our students was sitting up in the balcony at about a thousand-member church. She's sitting up in the balcony. She's fervently taking notes on the sermon. And a woman walks up to her. This is a high school junior. And this is a woman that was probably in about her 50s or so. A woman walked up to her and said, hey, you need to put that away. And she said, put what away? The woman said, you need to put your iPad away. It's inappropriate. For you to have your technology out and, and not be paying attention to the sermon. The student looked at her and said, ma'am, I'm taking notes on the sermon. You can look at them if you'd like. She said, I don't care what you're doing. It's disrespectful and inappropriate. You need to put that away. <laughs> and the student obliged until the woman walked away. And then pulled her iPad right back out and kept on taking notes. I found an issue that has plagued quite literally every single church that I have ever been in. Contemporary, traditional, you name it. It is an issue that I've seen every church struggle with to some extent. I've seen it here. I've seen it at York. I've seen it in my own home churches. Every single church that I've been to, and I've been to very many of them. It used to be my job to travel from church to church in college and, and either speak or bring a praise and worship band with us and lead for the youth. And I believe that this issue is one that keeps us from becoming the fullest that we can be as disciples of Jesus Christ. And here's what happens, right? So, so here's, here's, here's what happens. We, we have an encounter with Jesus. We're saved by Jesus and we, and we begin a new life. As a Christian, this is a good thing. Everything I'm saying right now is a good thing. And we follow him, and in doing so, we put to death our old ways. That is to say, we, we decide, okay, these are the things in my life that don't reflect Jesus. 
I need to rid myself of those and begin to live a life that more reflects his love and his character as he transforms me. Unfortunately, in following him, there's some navigating we have to do. We have to figure out, wait, which, which things do I need to put away? Some things aren't as black and white and as easy to decide. We have to figure out what parts, what parts of my life don't reflect Jesus and what parts of my life do. And as we move further into Christianity, we begin to focus more and more on our behaviors, trying our best to live how Jesus wants us to. Once again, this is all a good thing. I have not told you what the problem and the issue is yet. Many have a tendency to overdo it in this area. And instead of policing our own behavior to make sure that we are in line, we begin to police the behavior of others. We begin to believe that there's only one way to live, that everyone must put away the things that I put away, and everyone must adopt the things that I have adopted. There's only one way to do offering. There's only one way to do communion. There's only one way to do prayer. There's only one way to do song service. See, the problem is this. We begin to focus more on our behaviors and the behavior of others rather than Jesus. And what this results in is a misplaced value on people and especially other Christians. You see, we expect those outside the church to live in whatever way they want. But when we begin to project our behaviors onto those that believe, then suddenly we hold other people to a standard that they never asked to be held to. And we begin to define each other's value based on our performance and not on our personhood. I call this rigid discipleship. There are two kinds of discipleship that I'm going to talk about today. Rigid versus, the namesake of this sermon, fluid. These are two things that are always in conflict, always fighting against each other. And the line is very thin between the two. But it's also noticeable if we keep our eyes peeled. And so today I pray we can, we can peel some of our eyes, we can open them up and, and spot where this line is in our lives. And listen to me very carefully as I talk this morning. That line is different for every single person. Your walk with Christ is unique to you. Your journey is unlike anyone else's journey. You might find similarities along the way, but ultimately, just like every relationship is unique, so is yours with Christ. Acts was, a, was written by Luke as a historical document. We're going to be going through it in our Sabbath school quarterly for the next quarter. And it's meant to chronicle the rise of the early church immediately after Jesus' ascension. It shows how the early church moved out of Jerusalem and into other places, other cities, other nations. It shows how the Gentiles, or non-Jewish people, so us, were grafted into salvation. In other words, it wasn't just the Jews that were God's chosen people now, but as a result of what Jesus did, now everyone was able to be a part of God's chosen people. Should they, of course, desire to be. But see, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, don't have the standards of living that the Jews have. They don't know the rules and regulations, the policies and procedures. They don't understand the lifestyle. 
Not only that, but if the Gentiles are now allowed into the God's chosen people club, then what else did Jesus change? For example, circumcision was the mark of God's chosen people. But if everyone could be that now, did everyone have to be circumcised? Now, if you don't know what circumcision is, come talk to me afterwards, and I will tell you. I don't really want to go into detail about it, but um, it's not exactly the most pleasant experience. This is the dilemma the Jews faced. Do the Gentiles, those that are now joining us, do they have to do what we had to do? Or is the prescription different for them? So we pick up in Acts 15, verse 1. But some men came down to Antioch from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. So let's pause right there. So certain Jewish believers were coming from Judea to Antioch to tell the new Gentile believers, look, if you want to be in the club... You've got to go through our initiation. You have to be circumcised. But Paul and Barnabas, the two missionaries responsible for planting most of the New Testament churches, at least as recorded in the New Testament, they take issue with this. And here's what's most interesting about Paul taking issue with needing the Gentiles to be circumcised. Paul is a Jew through and through. He knows the scriptures better than you know the back of your own hand. If there's anyone who should know the truth about that very issue, it would be Paul. If there's anyone that, if you believe that the Gentiles would have to be circumcised in, in that time period, if there's anyone you expect to be on your side, it's Paul. So when Paul takes a stand against that, there's division that is immediately caused. And people probably accuse Paul, this is speculation, but it would not surprise me if they said, Paul, you're messing up. Paul, you're wrong. Paul, you don't know what you're talking about. Maybe you don't know this as well as you thought you did. After all, verse 2, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. This was contentious. This, would have, this could very well have caused a split. You see, Paul knew that God's chosen people had to be circumcised, and yet he argued with those who said they did. And so he continues and he says, look, you've seen the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit as he talks with those in Jerusalem. So you've seen them receive it the same way that we have. You've seen God move in the Gentiles. And he did so the same way he did for us by faith. So why are you going to circumcise them? A requirement of the old law. When we couldn't ourselves keep the old law. Why are we going to hold them to a standard that we couldn't even meet? 
No, we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, and so are they. This is the argument that Paul lays out in Jerusalem. So now look at verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Paul and Barnabas as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. See, moment after moment, they're listening and they're hearing what God has been doing. And even, and we'll read this in a moment, they refer to prophecy in the Old Testament. And they see that Gentiles would one day bear God's name because of what God would do. See, look at this, verse 16. After this I will return, and I will, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. This is God as I. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who were called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. At this point, James has been talking, and James, after Jesus has left, James has matured a bit. And what he does is he becomes that, he becomes that person that never says a word in a meeting or among friends, but when they open their mouth, everyone listens because what they're going to say is going to absolutely be mind-blowing or game-changing. This is who James becomes as he shares this prophecy. And then look at verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. This is the defining moment in church history. This is a moment where the church has to decide if it would adapt to new ways or stay rigid in the old traditions that they grew up in. Would they move forward or would they stand still? This isn't a tradition that has only existed for a couple decades. This is something that they've had to follow since their inception as a people. This is generations worth of tradition that they're currently discussing doing away with. But you see, they focused on the behavior as a symbol of God's chosen people. It was the mark of circumcision that showed you were a part of God's people. And as they focused on that, they almost missed. In their pursuit of doing what was right, they almost missed that it is not the action of circumcision that marks you as God's chosen people. It is the very fact that God chose you in the first place. Amen. That's what determines if you are a part of God's chosen people. God choosing you is what makes you God's chosen, not circumcision. And so they catch this, James catches this, and they knew that if they circumcised the Gentiles, if they asked the Gentiles to follow part of that law, they would be asking the Gentiles to follow all of it. After all, where does it stop? If they have to do this, what else do they have to do? But they recognized correctly that their behavior never saved them. Only God's grace did. And so it must be the same for the Gentiles. Turn to Luke 13. I want to show you an example in Scripture of what I'm, about, of what I'm talking about this morning. You see, rigid discipleship gives, gives confidence in our methods while perpetuating the suffering of people outside our gates. It is method-driven and creates an us-versus-them 
mentality. And that mentality is based solely on behavior. If you behave like us, you're in the group. And if you behave like them, you're a part of them. Those who behave like us are in the club. But fluid discipleship gives confidence in our mission while lifting up people. It is mission-driven and always results in a us-with-them mentality. It creates thriving teamwork, innovation, and change appropriate to the calling of God. So this is a prime example of what I'm talking about, this story we are about to read in Luke 13, verse 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. This is Jesus. And behold, there was a woman who had been, had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. Jesus sees a woman who is sick on the Sabbath and heals her. And listen to his words. He says, You are set free. Excuse me, you are set free from your disability or your infirmity, if that is what your translation says. He sets her free from what she is trapped in. Now look at verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. The synagogue leader was so rigid that he skipped right over the fact that he had just watched a miracle happen in front of his eyes. He was so rigid that he dismissed a miracle and its legitimacy based on what he decided, what he knew to be true, that you cannot heal on the Sabbath. His rigidness blinded him to the working and movement of God. And see, because of this belief that, you, that healing is work, because of this belief, the synagogue leader likely saw this woman many times, yet never once helped her, because it was the Sabbath. His rigidness in his beliefs that he wouldn't do any work on the Sabbath quite literally perpetuated this woman's suffering. The kind of disciple that you are will always always impact other people. It is your choice. It is my choice whether or not that impact is positive or negative. So Jesus rebukes the synagogue leader in verse 15. Then, he, then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? This is what he says. He says, look, you're so behavior focused and yet you can't even get the behavior right. You're holding this woman to a standard that you don't even live up to. You so clearly value your animals, but you don't even value your people. You see, fluid discipleship is mission-driven. And it remembers the words of Jesus in Matthew 22, when Jesus is asked, Lord, what is the greatest commandment? And he responds, love the Lord your God with all your heart 
and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The mission of God's people values two things above all else. God and people. In fact, the only times you see Jesus get angry in the Gospels is when either God or people are being disrespected. That's it. The only behavior that God's mission encourages is behavior that lifts up God and lifts up people. So first, fluid discipleship is mission-driven, but second, fluid discipleship sets people free. It does not bond them to their behaviors. You see, Jesus healed the woman from being sick. She'd been sick for 18 years, and she would have been sick for at least another day had Jesus not been fluid. The synagogue leader, even after seeing the miracle, was so convinced that what Jesus was doing was sin that he would stand against Jesus himself. You can be so convinced you're right that you stand against Jesus. In our rigidness, our insistence that something is most certainly sin, we may find ourselves directly opposed to Jesus himself when we believe that we are actually following him. But see, look at what else fluid discipleship is. Look at verse 17. And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. When people are set free, when people are set free, when, when rigidness is done away with, people rejoice. They want to know more. They want to experience that freedom, and they want to be closer to Jesus every time. And so if fluid discipleship is mission-driven and attractive, then rigid discipleship is behavior-driven and repulsive, and no one wants to be a part of it. In other words, churches full of rigid disciples, those who believe their way is the only correct way and that others must fall in line, will inevitably die, because no one wants to be a part of that. Now, I said that this issue has plagued every church I've ever been in. Do not hear me as saying that every single person in here is 100% rigid or 100% fluid. Usually, every single person is a mix of the two in some ways and, in some other, and, and fluid in others. There's always a mixture. So I'm not walking in here and I'm not preaching condemning the entire church for being one way. That's not what I'm doing. What I'm calling on each and every one of us to do is look inward and say, in which ways have I been rigid? You see, we talk about the youth epidemic, that youth are leaving the church in droves. And a good friend of mine who's a pastor in this conference put it the best I have ever heard it. He said, youth leaving the church is only half the problem. The other half is that the adults have also left, but their bodies are still here pretending. So many adults have left a faith that experiences freedom in Christ from a behavior-focused life. But their bodies remain in the church because they were taught and they believed that this is the only way you could do it. Their faith died a long time ago, but they're still here because this is all they know. This is the one way they were told was right. The youth, the young adults, and I say that uh, because I, as a young adult, they see that. 
and they want no part of it, and they vote with their feet by walking away. You see, our rigidness will kill us. No one is completely fluid or completely rigid. And we all have blind spots and we all have spots we do well in. So how do I figure out where I am being rigid? The answer is simple. In any given situation regarding the behavior of someone else, are you valuing their behavior or are you valuing them? Are you talking about their behavior more than their humanity? Do you even see a person beyond their behavior? You see, rigidness dehumanizes people. It focuses only on their behaviors and not their person. I see this many times with families who have a son or a daughter that comes out as LGBTQ+. And then the parent only focuses on the behavior and forgets the person behind it. I see it happen in so many ways. That is just one example. Are you valuing the person or are you valuing their behavior? So today I want to give you some very, very specific examples. These are not meant to be, let me put it this way. I'm not talking to anyone specifically, but if you identify yourself in any one of these, then I would call you to recognize that. You see, rigidness looks at churches who play loud music and says God is not honored in that. Even though Psalm 150 says praise him with clashing cymbals, praise him with resounding cymbals. We talk about reverence. I've, I've never known clashing cymbals to be reverence, but David so clearly says that they are. Perhaps our idea of reverence is what is rigid. Now please understand me. I'm a big fan of reverence, but it takes on many forms. See, rigidness looks and says God's not honored, but fluid discipleship looks at, ch at churches who play loud music and says, thank God there is a place in God's kingdom for every one of his people. Rigidness looks at people who don't dress nice for church, ironic, and says they're not honoring God. They're not respecting the house of God or God himself. But nowhere in the New Testament does God create a dress code for his followers. Fluid discipleship looks at people who don't dress nice for church and says, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Rigidness looks at the Bible version of its pastors and says if it's not King James, they aren't preaching God's word. When God's word wasn't originally written in King James. It wasn't even written in English. Fluid discipleship looks at the Bible version of its pastors and says, praise God that the Bible has been made understandable and accessible for everyone. Rigidness looks at change in the church and, and says it's a threat to reverence and respect for God. When God is the one who has guided his church through countless changes throughout the Bible and the ages. Fluid Fluid discipleship looks at change in the church and says, praise God that he is moving us forward and that he is moving with us. Rigidness looks at personal behavior and says, what's right for me must be right for everyone else. And what's wrong for me must be wrong for everyone else. Fluid discipleship looks at personal behavior and says, God has wired each of us differently. And what works for me may not always work for someone else. 
Praise God for creating us, creating each of us as unique individuals. Amen. Rigid discipleship labels the movement of God as the movement of Satan and stands against it. Fluid discipleship labels the movements of God as his and moves with him. Rigidness and rigid discipleship says they must do things our way in order to join us. But fluid discipleship says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Other versions say, therefore, it is my judgment that we should make it easy for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Last week, when I was in York, one of our, uh, I want to say attendees, she's not a member yet, but she's been attending for a little over a year. She raises her hand and she says, I have a praise. I have been smoking for 45 years and I have successfully quit without nicotine patches, without gum, and no withdrawals. God has finally set me free. Amen. Rigidness would look at that. Would look at someone who was caught in a smoking addiction or an alcohol addiction and says, you've got to clean up. You've got to stop. Before you walk in these doors. Or before you're allowed to be a part of this community. But fluid discipleship says that God works with everyone in his own time. I was baptized at 14. You may have been baptized at 35, 50, 80. I don't know and I don't care. What I'm saying is that every single person God works with you on your own journey. And when he decides to set you free is indeed when you will be free. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, didn't you just give free license for us to do whatever we want because we're fluid? God isn't a God that allows anything we want. Correct. I agree with you. Which is why I would turn your attention to 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul, along this line of thought, says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. This is not a free pass to do whatever we want. This is a call, very specifically, to value people more than behavior. Jesus didn't die to save your behavior. He died to save you. Don't move the value that God placed on people on to behavior. When you make a decision based on your tradition, or because that's the way you've always done it, or that's the way you're used to, then you are being rigid, even if the tradition is a good one. You are not making a decision based on what uplifts God and loves God and his people. Instead, you are making a decision based on past behavior. Now listen, there are certain things we're called to be rigid in. We're called to be rigid in Jesus as our Savior. Amen. That is the foundation of our faith. There are certain things we are called to be rigid in. But the things we're called to be rigid in are our foundation. Everything else is the walls. And what happens with rigid discipleship is when we, we move the foundation to the walls and the walls to the foundation. And the foundation of our faith becomes our traditions, our belief statements, the way we've always done it, you name it. That is where we become rigid. It's when we start replacing some of the wood, some of the drywall from the sides of our building or the roof, and we put it in the foundation instead. And that happens piece by piece. It typically does not happen all at once. 
And here's what I've seen. Every church that has rigid disciples, disciples that refuse to change, starts to become healthy and grow soon after those rigid disciples leave because they didn't agree with how things were done. Every single time. Insistence that our way is the only way to do things is what can kill our church. Now listen to me, I said our church. The church of God, the body of Christ will live. Amen. Absolutely. But individual churches shut down all the time. Our rigidness will kill us. And look, don't think that because you've been a Christian or an Adventist for decades means that you're off the hook. Peter, after following Jesus for over a year, literally following him, still makes a mistake to the point where in Matthew 16, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Imagine being called that by Jesus himself. In Galatians, Peter again, years after Jesus has left the earth, is called out by Paul for being racist towards the Gentiles, for excluding them and only associating with the Jews. Read it, Galatians 2. What's killing the church and what's killing our individual churches is our rigidity, our refusal to accept the workings of God as such. And our rigidity is repulsive. It drives people away from the truth of God and his love. It does not draw anyone closer to him. Our fluidity, however, is attractive. It reflects the very fluidity that Jesus demonstrated, his adaptability and his joy. It sets people free from sin, heals them, and fills them with hope. But pastor, the truth, we must stand firm in the truth. Listen, the church, I mean, the truth can stand firm on its own. If it's the truth, it will last. Jesus is described as the Lion of Judah. When was the last time that you had to defend a lion? The lion can protect itself. So those other Adventists, those other Christians, those other people we say are doing it wrong, we need them. Because through them, God is reaching people that we can't. And they need us. Because through us, God is reaching people that they can't. In the same way that I can talk with someone who has lost a parent prematurely, and I can connect with them, I can empathize with their experience, there are others who can't do that. Maybe you can't do that, but maybe you have an experience that I've not had, and you can connect with someone through that experience. Everyone. God can work through everyone. We all have our talents and we all have our gifts. And unless we begin working together in fluid discipleship, then we will all die in our rigidity. Having accomplished nothing but giving God a bad name among the very people he is trying so hard to save. I talked about this a few years ago as we voted on our mission statement. And I talked about the mission is concrete, but the method is fluid. Our mission, what we are called to do, never changes. But how we do it does change. It adapts with the culture. It adapts with the time. It changes over time. And if you don't believe me, just open your Bible because that is a perfect example of it. Because God adapted. You now have a Bible in your hands that you can read every day in your own language and in the version of English that is the easiest for you to read. So if you have identified a way this morning that you have been or are currently being rigid, then I'm calling on you to ask forgiveness and repent from it. And please hear me. I'm talking to me too. 
And if you have realized this morning the ways in which you are being fluid, then praise God for the direction that he has set you in. See, God loves each and every one of us, and he wants us to be fluid, to work together, and to understand that as the times change, so does God's method. But the substance of his character, his truth, never changes. But the way that truth is communicated absolutely does. It's time for us to be a mission-driven people, lifting people up and setting people free. So instead of looking at someone else who's doing ministry slightly different than you or in a way that you don't necessarily prefer, instead of looking at that and saying, that's not the way to do it, say, hey, praise God that he's working through you in what you're doing. Amen. I can't wait to see what God does. Listen, you want to know if something is good or bad, test it by its fruits. If it's successful, then it's from God. And listen to me, sometimes God does call us to fail so that he can make us successful in the end. But it's time for us to be a mission-driven people and let go of our rigidness, to let go of our focus on our behavior and instead move into the freedom that God's grace allows us to live in. After all, our behavior never saves us and it never could. Only God's grace can do that. Amen. Amen.